you have your Bibles, and I hope you join me in turning to James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James 4, 13 through 17. Obviously, our graduates are before us today. We are celebrating their achievement and honoring the commitment of their families, their parents. And uh, this is quite an achievement for moms and dads, too, when you get them graduated. And, uh, you know, that there is a, a little deception about the graduation experience and that you think that your tab will have been lightened until the tuition invoice comes. And then uh, you discover that that is not at all the case. We, we want to focus a little bit. I'd like to focus anyway a little bit on uh, something that should be of great interest to our graduates, but from a passage that I think you'll find relevant as a congregation. We have uh, talked about, even in the last few minutes, the plans that they have for the next few years. They have a determined course that has been charted for them. I would note here that although you have ideas about what your next few years hold for you, untold billions of dollars have been spent by well-meaning parents on education that turned out in those initial years to be something altogether different than what the Lord had in store for you. Your experience will help to train you in the next few years of how loosely we ought to hold our personally made plans. But from a biblical perspective, there's a theological reason for that. And James helps us to understand that a bit. The passage we're looking at warns us against the sin of presumptuousness, stating too confidently what the future holds, believing too firmly that somehow the future is in our grasp, that if we only push the right buttons and pull the right levers, that the outcomes yielded will be just what we had in view. It's a passage that lands right between a passage in the book of James on pride and a passage in the book of James on the sins of the wealthy. Now, that may seem far off and distant to you, but take it from me. Within the context of the world population, we are a people inclined toward pride, largely because of the level of comfort we live with or enjoy and the measure of wealth God has afforded us as individuals and as a society. Given where we are in the world, our place and location generationally and otherwise, it behooves us to hear a passage set within the context of wealth and pride. So let's listen together and listen carefully. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you're like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for the person who knows what to do, or to knows rather what is good, and doesn't do it. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. 
Our tendency is to speak in concrete terms, in fixed terminology about what the future holds for us. James, again, warns us against planning with such certainty. The reality is that our lives are full of contingencies. The variables that contribute to the makeup of our lives are many. Life is full of uncontrolled variables. You have no control whatsoever on what those around you do, often the decisions of others bearing great impact on the way you live your life or the direction or course of your life. You have no control whatsoever on the circumstances of your environment, on the society around you, the things that unfold in a general sense that may have great bearing on the way you live your life. We have given, been given sort of a fresh perspective on this matter, given that we are coming out of a pandemic. I can assure you that my first three years as your pastor have looked markedly different than the way I had envisioned them. Everything shut down, circumstances entirely beyond our control have shaped our lives for now more than two full years. We make plans. And we should make plans. But James counsels us here that we must hold those plans loosely. Look to verse 13. Come now. An Old Testament prophetic way of saying, listen, come in close. And adding emphasis to the statement that follows. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. The statement itself suggests that we have control over our location, over our time, over our activities, and our outcomes, the outcomes yielded by our business endeavors. We're going to go tomorrow, and we're going to go over there, and we're going to stay there for a year, and we're going to do business, and we're going to make a profit. It needs to be noted here that James 4, 13 through 17 is not a prohibition against planning. You should have plans. In fact, I could point you to dozens of passages in the Bible that speak to the urgency of having certain goals, having certain plans and implementing plans to help you arrive at or achieve those goals. You can't read the book of Proverbs a single chapter without encountering a verse that counsels us to plan our ways, to plan our work, and to work the plan. Even within the context of salvation, Jesus invites us that we would count the cost. When he invites us to repent of our sins, to turn away from the things of this world, and to embrace him following in his footsteps, he warns, admonishes us that we should count the cost. I would add, likewise, that you should count the cost of rejecting out of hand the invitation of the gospel. Both come at great great cost. So understand that the Bible is not opposed to planning. Every now and then I'll run into someone who's sort of living life by the seat of their pants. They don't know from one moment to the next what they're doing or what they're going to be doing. And they regard this as sort of a spiritual endeavor. Well, that's foolish. There's nothing spiritual about being careless or being without direction or without a plan. The problem in our passage is not so much with what they say, 
but with what they don't say. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. In any event, James is critical of the idea that we control our time, our location, and the outcomes of our endeavors. We're encouraged in verse 13 that we would hold our plans loosely. You graduates will be glad to know that we'll not call you back five years from now and evaluate you against the plans that you have shared with us in this morning's graduate recognition service. God has an incredible way of guiding our path, shifting our focus, and turning the desires of our heart in much, much different directions. Verse 14, James continues on. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you're like smoke that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. You don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, how a single moment, how a single decision can change the course of your life, which should be for us a measure of encouragement. There should be a degree of comfort that we take in that. You have no control over tomorrow. Jesus encourages us in light of this reality that we would focus on today. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Worry about nothing and all your concerns and anxieties. Bring these, casting them upon the Lord. James also reminds us of the brevity of life. It's a wisp of smoke, James says. It is here in an instant and then it is gone away. Now here, here's, the, here's the challenge for your pastor, specific to you graduates. I can remember, believe it or not, when I was your age and people would come to me and say the things that old people say. And they would say, your life will be gone before you know it. And the older you get, the faster time goes and various other things like that. And the thing is, you just can't know except by experience how quickly this thing really gets away from you, right? I mean, it really does. I, this time next year, this time next year, I, I, your youthful, young, spry pastor will have a, a child in our graduate recognition service, Lord willing. That's the kind of thing that old people have, right? And yet here we are. I think we all come into this world with sort of a sense of invincibility, and until that moment in life where we come to grips with our mortality, it is practically impossible that we could truly appreciate the weight of what James describes here. You're like, a, uh, you're like smoke that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. But indeed, it does. James is urging us here that we would live in light of this reality with a sense of urgency with an earnestness that acknowledges that our natural span of life is short. It is brief within the context of all of eternity. Verse 14 stands as a reminder to us that we want to do something with our life here that matters long past the span of our natural life. Something that matters in the halls of heaven 10,000 years from now. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. As I mentioned a moment ago, the problem with the first statement, the statement made in verse 13, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit is not with what is said, but rather what is not said. Verse 15 helps us with this. 
Instead, James says, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There ought to be an acknowledgement within your plan making that God has a distinct purpose and plan for your life. Now, this is not like the purpose-driven life speech this morning, right? But you have got to know, this is basic Bible 101, that God has a determined purpose and plan for your life. As you plan, those plans ought to be shaped by this reality. In other words, there ought to be more than just margin for the will and the work of God in your life as you plan. The will and the work of God ought to be the axis around which all our plans are made. All of our life oriented around our devotion to the gospel, his devotion to us, and what we know with absolute clarity to be his will for us. Plan for the will and the work of God. Now, from small children, we are coached to establish certain expectations or ambitions in life. Usually the kind of ambitions that meet worldly expectations or will afford us a certain financial or social standing in life. And those things can be important. I'm not suggesting that they're not. But the greater need is that we would focus in all of our planning and all of our ambition on the things of God. That that would be the priority. And it may not mean for you a shift in vocation. It may not mean a different career path, but it may mean a remarkably different perspective in your career path. Is there really any margin? This is for you adults. Is there any space for the work and the will of God in your life? Or are you so fixed in your determination to reach your goals and to meet the ambitions and expectations you've established for yourselves or others have established for you, that there is no room for service in the kingdom of God. I, I try as a preacher to be careful not to draw in such black and white, hard and fast ways, distinctions between what is often called the secular and the sacred. We tend to divide vocation, career paths into these two categories. The sacred, usually meaning pastors, but we might also add missionaries and church planners and student pastors and children's pastors and servants of a variety of shapes and experiences. And then on the other hand, there are the rest, industry and medical, and you, you just name them off, right? Now I want you to know, I want all of you to know, we need to get this, we need to master this, that for the believer and the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no separation between the secular and the sacred. By virtue of your work in any industry, in any vocation, in any career path, at any job, it has now become a sacred position because you, full of the Holy Spirit of God, have been placed there to leverage your influence, to operate within that sphere or circle of friends and family and people that you could be salt and light there, that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So there is no distinction between the secular and the sacred. However... There is a very special sense in which 
God is calling out from within congregations just like ours. Men and women to give themselves entirely to vocational ministry. In other words, to make the lone focus of their life missions and evangelism and the preaching of God's word and the planning of churches. Those don't come out of thin air. They come from congregations just like ours. I was in a meeting of the Mississippi Baptist Convention last week, and our executive director shared that between 15 and 20% of our churches are without pastors, and there are hiring shortages being experienced across America, not just in Mississippi, but in virtually every state convention. That is not because God is calling less people to the work of ministry. It is because we have been reluctant to speak of the specific and special call of God on the lives of men and women to vocational ministry out of fear of diminishing the significance of work within the world. In other words, we've been afraid of contributing to the building up of this separation between the sacred and the secular. Now, I just want you to hear me clearly that wherever you put your feet as a believer in the message of the gospel is holy ground. And at the same time, God is calling out from among his people, men and women, to serve vocationally in ministry. And it would behoove us to run to that call and to serve him with glad hearts. Now, in some respects, what James is addressing in verse 15, in fact, in verses 13 through 15, are those that seem to have neglected the reality that God has a distinct purpose and plan for their life. Maybe they didn't know. I think sometimes we just don't know. There seems to be so much confusion about what God's will is. We want to know in certain ways. And there are areas of life where we can know with absolute certainty what the will of God is. It is God's will that men would be saved. Our sanctification is God's will. There are certain things that we know about marriage and family and how we conduct ourselves within society. We know clearly what God's will for us in that moment is. But then there are those areas that we just have to work out by principle from God's word rather than book, chapter, and verse. I like to tell young men who come seeking counsel about who they should marry. Unless her name is Peter or Grace, I don't have book, chapter, and verse for you, right? But you can leverage the principles of God's word to make good decisions about who you marry. Which, by the way, for you graduates, if you're a believer, the most consequential decision remaining in your life is who you choose as a husband or wife. Choose wisely. Or where you go to work. There's latitude for us. There's some liberty there for us. But we have to make application of the, of the principles of God's word in making good decisions in those instances. Some people just don't know what God's will is. And sometimes in frustration, throw up their hands rather than laboring to discern from God's word and by his spirit the direction they should go. This is what James addresses in 13 through 15. But in verses 16 and 17... James puts his finger on those who know God's plan and purpose for their life and yet reject it out of hand. Look at verse 15. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. Back in verse 16, James again says, 
you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. He's assessing the person who makes the first statement. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a place and we'll do business for a year and we'll make a profit. That kind of statement on its face supposes that my natural ability is such that even apart from the blessing and favor of God, what I endeavor to do will yield the outcomes I had hoped or expected. That's just never the case. Apart from the blessing and the favor of God, you and I can go no further. The statement itself fails to acknowledge the necessity of God's blessing and favor in our life, not only in the outcomes being what we had imagined they would be, but in allowing that we could have the very next breath, your next breath. Every beat of your heart is under the authority of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Ultimately, the course of our life is in his hands. To fail to acknowledge such is arrogant, James says, and all such boasting is evil. Then he gives what we might read as a sort of generic principle in verse 17. So it is a sin for the person who knows what to do, what is, who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. I went to seminary at New Orleans Seminary. We had in the, in the front of the campus, big student center, hardened student center, big, nice, soft, comfortable cloth couches. I can't tell you how many hours I've slept in those big, nice, comfortable cloth couches. And uh, occasionally Brandy would visit the campus and, and just be disgusted that I would lay on and sleep on those big, nice cloth couches that thousands of other people had laid on and slept on. But anyway, you know, we had these signs. It was a carpeted area and it's supposed to be a nicer area. And it's been remodeled since I was there. But they had these signs that said, no food or drink on the couches, which was really hard because the cafe was right there. And if you're a distant student like me, you, you lived in the student center. You, when I tell you I slept, I slept some days in the student center. And you just want a snack. You know what I mean? The problem with their signs, and they were at every, every setting, they had below them in smaller print, James 4, 17, to him who knows to do what is good and does not do it, it is a sin to him. So the joke was, we, when you sat down, you just put them down so that you couldn't see them. And you hoped that you would forget about it so that you could eat your snack without guilt of conscience at least the next time you visited the student center and the nice fancy cloth couches. In a generic sense, it is true. For him who knows to do what is good and does not do it, it is a sin. Which is not to say that if you don't know to do what is good and you fail to do it, that it's not a sin. It is here that to whom much is given, much is required. And your level of culpability, your responsibility is increased by your knowledge of what is good and now your failure in light of that to do it. But in the context of James 4, 13 through 17, what he's speaking to here is the reality that even to do noble things in the place of the higher calling of God is in and of itself a sin. Some of the most dangerous activities for you, as young adults, as, as older, it doesn't matter where you are in life. Some of the most dangerous activities are the morally neutral activities. Because we can go about them feeling pretty good about what we're doing. They may even have a measure of nobility about them. 
It may feel good to be involved or engaged or actively participating. I can give you an example from my own personal life. We wrestle with this thing back and forth with our children and their sports. It provides me with an opportunity to be with my kids and to spend meaningful time, time that I know by experience they'll remember for the rest of their lives. I remember play and catch in the yard with my daddy like it was yesterday and I will for the rest of my days. They'll have those same memories. It's a great hobby. The problem is it tends toward mastery in our lives. And although it's a great activity, it is a terrible religion. And there are all sorts of activity, activities that tend toward mastery in our life. Career path can be the same way. Future planning can operate the same way. What you determine to do in the future can operate the same way. It can be a good, noble, praiseworthy thing that you would move to such and such a place and do such and such a business and make so much and so much profit. But if that has taken the place of what you know to be God's stated purpose and plan for your life, the once noble has now become sinful in your very hands. There's an older gentleman in my life who's been a part of my life for all of my life. I, I, even before I became a Christian, he was one of very few people in my life that walked with Jesus and modeled what it looked like to be a believer. We see each other a couple times, three times a year, and without exception, we'll always find ourselves in the corner of the room talking about the things of the Lord and what God is doing in ministry and their church where they are and it's, it's just always fun to just talk to an older saint about the things of God. And I, I, don't, I don't think we've talked in years when he didn't well up with tears. And speak of a time in his life when he sensed the clear call of God to preaching ministry. And initially, out of reluctance, he put it off and he put it off. But eventually, out of resistance, given the circumstances of his life, he balked at the call of God on his life. And he weeps up, he wells up and he weeps at now 80 years of life behind him. God has blessed him. He's been fortunate in so many ways. He was a model to me as a young person, not, not only of walking with Jesus, but of success in a general sense. But he traded all in today for the better work of following after the call of God on his life. Now, I don't, I don't know how all that works. I don't know how you distinguish between what God called to do in times past and what has been allowed to unfold in the years since that time. I don't, I don't know what you do with all that. But I know it would be a shameful thing to get to the end of our lives and look back at the regrettable decisions to go our way as opposed to the way of our King Jesus. James exhorts us that we hold our plans loosely, that we plan for the will and the work of our God. And that lastly, in these closing verses, that we embrace the will of God for our life. What does it look like to plan for the will and the work of God? Our tendency is that we have these compartments in life, right? We've got financial life over here. We've got vocational life here. We've got family life. And then we've got church life. What I'm saying to you is that Jesus isn't interested in being the Lord of part of your life, but of all of your life. And if your church life isn't such 
that it is seeping into every component of your life, there is something greatly amiss with your understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and to walk daily with the Lord Jesus. It is an encouragement to me to talk, and there are a few families like this within our body that I've had the chance to talk with recently who have planned their life. they're, They're in secular vocations, at least that's the way most would regard them. But they have planned their life for kingdom advancing purposes. In other words, their contributions to their retirement funds haven't been geared towards purchasing an RV, finding seashells, or buying a condo on the beach. But with ensuring that at some point in their life they had the financial margin to give themselves to ministry abroad. Or they had the liberty financially to contribute in meaningful ways to kingdom advancing work. It's encouraging to me to hear from time to time from young people who are working in education so that they're able to attain for themselves a line of work that affords them even early on the kind of time they desire to have to give to the service of the church for the advancement of his kingdom. In every area of our life, without qualification or exception, we orient our decisions, our plans, our ambitions, and our goals around the goodness of our God and ultimately the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, I realize that this message this morning and this morning's service, in some respects, is geared toward our graduating seniors. But there's not a soul in this room who isn't actively engaged in planning for their future. It is just human nature. You're thinking. Some of you are thinking about where you're going to eat lunch. Others of you are thinking about consequential decisions that will unfold in the afternoon or the evening. Some are thinking about next work week and the demands that are waiting on you there. Some of you are thinking about things that lie yet 10 years into the future. But we are all, inevitably, we are planning. Our baby boy, the three-year-old, has gotten to that place where when you tell him what we're going to do, he wants to now know what we're going to do after that. And when you tell him what we're going to do after that, he now wants to know what comes after that. It's just human nature. From this big, we desire to know something of what comes next. James is inviting us here, even as the gospel invites us, to plan, yes, and all that. Do what you can. Finally and forever, ultimately, to rest in the all-sufficient grace of our Savior Jesus. There are some milestone moments that you've sort of got to arrive at by experience to understand the full weight of them. Like earlier when we talked about coming to realize our mortality, that you're not invincible. It'll come by sickness, it'll come by catastrophe, it'll come by loss, but it will come. For some of you, you you may go unscathed through the early years and it may simply come by the passing of time, but it will come. There will be that moment when you realize I'm not as immortal as I thought I really was. You just have to have that experience. There must also come a point in time when God gives us eyes to see the full measure of our sin and the weight of the penalty, the death, the debt that looms large over us in light of our sin. 
God gives you eyes to see in that moment how great your sin really is. And simultaneous to that, he gives us eyes to see the majesty and the beauty of his only son, the source of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Unless you've had that experience, unless you've come to that place of great weight and ultimately of great release in Christ, it's difficult to fathom what a moment of significance it really is. But it must come if you or I are to see the kingdom of heaven. The invitation of the gospel is that we would look to Jesus for grace and mercy and forgiveness. God having loved us so much so that, it, so much that he gave his only son, Jesus clothing himself in flesh, walking without sin, dying as our substitute on the cross, raised again the third day, beckons with nail-scarred hands that we would come to him. The hands that fashioned you as you are, the hands that mark our path and every mile marker along the way, the hands that hung the stars in their courses and the earth on its axis, beckon that we would call out to him for saving grace. Come, come, come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the privilege of considering these verses and their bearing on our life. Help us, God, in all our planning to regard your will and your work. God, it is my prayer, and, and I, I'm hopeful that it's our prayer collectively as a body. That you would use our lives, Lord, to build and strengthen the kingdom. God, I pray that you would help us, truly help us to do something with our meager existence that would matter beyond the span of our natural life. Help us, Lord, to master what it means to lay treasures, not on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel, but in heaven. Help us to do something that matters. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.